the uh, sermon text for this morning is John chapter 4, verses 19 through 26, as we continue our study through the Gospel of John. And uh, we are in a part of the Gospel in which Jesus has begun a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Uh, Jesus met her at a well because he was thirsty and she was there uh, drawing water for her household. And we read in chapter 4 of John that she was there at noontime. And as we've noted in previous weeks, the fact that this woman came at noontime to draw water indicates that her sin was known to her neighbors. Women were more likely to go in groups to draw water, and they usually did so in the cool of the morning or in the cool of the evening. And so it seems that because she came at noontime, she came alone. There's a sense in which uh, John is, is explaining to us that she had been ostracized by her community because of her public shame and her public sin. And Jesus prophetically noted her sin when he said to her, in John chapter 4, uh, beginning of verse 16, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And yet we see, despite her sin, despite her public shame, uh, Jesus engaged in a deep theological conversation with her to the uh, result that even she was was surprised by the way that he engaged her and spoke to her. Uh, In verse 9, we read, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John, the gospel writer, gives us a little historical note saying, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, and we explored why that was uh, in previous weeks. We know that the purpose of all of this, this conversation that Jesus had with the woman, this conversation that he knew that he needed to have according to God's great plan of redemption was because of the fact that Jesus had come to seek and to save the lost. And this woman was lost in her sin. She was far from God. Despite her past, though, Jesus revealed that he has both the authority and the willingness to grant her salvation by her spirit. That though others had written her off, and though she felt ashamed by her sin, Jesus explained to her that salvation could be for her as well. He says very clearly in verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. You know, there are so many wonderful reminders like this throughout the scriptures, loved ones, that no one is too far from God. One of the wonderful things about the Bible is that it's brutally honest about sin. It's brutally honest about our fallen nature. All the saints in scripture are not painted with rose-colored glasses showing only their their perfections and and the good things that they've done, but it also shows the ways in which they sin. Sins like 
King David's adultery with Bathsheba, Peter's denial of Christ. Uh, these are reminders to us that God doesn't call perfect people, but he perfects those whom he calls, and that he redeems even the worst sinners and uses them for his glory. And so we pick up in the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, beginning at verse 19 this morning. The woman said to him, uh, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Friends, in these verses, we learn what it means to worship God. As Jesus is instructing this Samaritan woman, we learn what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. We learn first in our sermon outline, Jesus explains about where to worship, where to worship. Notice in verse 20, the Samaritan woman seemed to want to deflect Jesus' observations about her, uh, about her sinful lifestyle that he had brought up. And it seems that in the course of their conversation that she wanted to, in a, in a sense, uh, deflect the conversation, conversation to another topic, to talk about something else. And so we see that she brought up one of the ongoing theological disagreements between the Jews and the Samaritans. And this disagreement centered around where God was to be worshipped, the location that God was to be worshipped. You know, we know that uh, King David had selected Jerusalem, and after he acquired land and brought the tabernacle to Jerusalem, his son Solomon built God's temple in the city of Jerusalem. And so that city, and especially the temple area, became the holy center of worship for the Jews. However, the Samaritans disagreed with this holy site. And the reason that they disagreed with it was because they believed that only the first five books of Moses, the uh, first five books of our Bibles, what we know as the Torah or the Pentateuch, that only those first five books were the inspired word of God. So the Samaritans only held that uh, what was taught in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy they only held to those things, and they rejected the rest of the Old Testament as the word of God. And this, in turn, led them to reject Jerusalem and the temple of the Jews as the holy place of worship. Uh, and the reason for this is we need to remember that the place that was selected by King David was clearly explained in the later part of the Old Testament, in 
those books that we call the historical books, such as First and Second Samuel and the like. And so the Samaritans believe that you know, just because it was recorded in these historical books, it doesn't make it a holy site. They held instead to the fact that Mount Gerizim was the place where God was to be worshipped, not Jerusalem. This is because uh, Mount Gerizim was the first place where Abraham built an altar. And that's recorded in Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 through 7. Mount Gerizim was also the place where the blessings of the covenant were to be shouted by the covenant community as they were prepared to enter the promised land. This was recorded in, in Deuteronomy. And so there was this ongoing theological debate between the Samaritans and the Jews. Should God be worshipped in Jerusalem, as the Jews say, or on Mount Gerizim, as the Samaritans argue? And this is what the Samaritan woman was referring to in verse 20. And she mentioned this debate. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She's referring to the Samaritans. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus' answer here, is instructive. We read in verse 21, he said to her, A woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You know, what Jesus is referring to here is to his upcoming redemptive work on the cross. In fact, the key to Jesus' answer to the Samaritan woman can be seen when he referred here to his hour. Remember, he already mentioned his hour in John chapter 1 when he spoke to his uh, uh, mother at the wedding at Cana. Pardon me, that was John chapter 2. There in uh, John chapter 2, we read that he specifically, in speaking to his uh, mother, referred to the fact that his hour had not yet come. Or sometimes in the Gospel of John, he referred to his time has not yet come. And this specifically, it refers to his death his resurrection, and his ascension, his death on the cross, and, and the exaltation that would follow. And we'll actually see him referring to this time or this hour throughout the Gospel of John. And interestingly, in John chapter 17, verse 1, right before he was betrayed by Judas and arrested, Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour that he had been speaking about throughout the gospel had come there in John chapter 17 when he was betrayed into the hands of sinners. And so he's saying to the Samaritan woman that after his death, after his resurrection and his ascension, his exaltation to the right hand of the Father, that something is going to happen. A cataclysmic change is going to happen and that change is going to be the fact that the temple in Jerusalem will no longer be the central place where people will worship the one true God. It will no longer be that holy site that we find in the Old Covenant. Jesus already alluded to this in John chapter 1. Remember after he cleared the temple courts, we read, in John chapter 1, that Jesus entered into Jerusalem and he entered into the temple and he saw what was going on there. 
buying and, and selling and all, all kinds of uh, sinful actions. And so his reaction is recorded in, in John chapter 1. We read beginning at verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered what was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, the temple in Jesus' day was the place where God was to be worshipped. It was the primary place, location in the world where God was to be worshipped. And it was specifically the place where sacrifices for sin were to be made. You know that Jews came to the temple every year to sacrifice a lamb for their sins uh, during Passover. They came to the temple because... That's where sacrifices were made by the priests and received by God under the Old Covenant. And here is where we see the greatest sense of why Jesus says, it's no longer going to be the temple in Jerusalem where you will enter into worship. It, it, would actually, it will actually be that you will enter into the worship of the true and living God as you enter through the means that I will provide through my own body, which is the true temple of God. Richard Phillips notes, says here, Jesus' death on the cross would serve as the place where sin is forgiven, where people are received into God's grace. There is no other way to be forgiven, to be accepted by God and received into his presence, but through Christ, because he is the true temple. And we know that God dramatically demonstrated the fact that the temple in Jerusalem would no longer be the place where he was to be worshipped because it was destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman army and it was never rebuilt. And why was it never rebuilt? Because it be had become obsolete. It was part of the old covenant which had been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. He was the last sacrifice for sin, the perfect sacrifice for sin once and for all. And so Jesus is explaining that after his hour will come, he will fulfill those old covenant types and shadows. And so it will not be in Jerusalem that God will be worshipped, but it will be throughout the world when Christians gather to worship in his name. And so now, loved ones, as Christians, we don't have one holy site in the world, such as Jerusalem or or Mount Gerizim. We don't have a holy site that is the one central place of our worship, but we know that God is worshipped in all 
true churches throughout the world. We've worshipped in all true churches that rightly preach the word of God, that preach the gospel. He's worshipped in true churches that administer the sacraments according to God's word. And in those churches where people are cared for by loving pastors and elders. Be they churches in Southern California or in Australia or Europe or anywhere. Because wherever Christians are gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus, he is present there with them by his spirit. This is why the writer of Hebrews explains this wonderful truth in Hebrews chapter 10. That now because Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial laws by dying for our sins, we should be all the more encouraged to meet together for worship as the Christian church. To meet together in praise to the Lord our God. The writer of Hebrews writes in chapter 10, beginning of verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so where are we to worship? We are to worship everywhere in the world where there is a true church and where Christ is rightly preached and worshipped. Jesus next explains to the Samaritan woman about who to worship. We read in verse 22, uh, You worship what you do not know, he says. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And what Jesus is explaining to her here is that she and, and the Samaritans were not worshiping the true and living God. And why it was that? Well, it was because they rejected the books of Joshua through Malachi. Remember, the Samaritans held only to the first five books of Moses. And, and since they rejected the books of Joshua through Malachi, their understanding of God was ultimately wrong. Because we know, loved ones, that God's promise is revealed and, and God's person is revealed not just in the first five books of Moses, but the promised Messiah and, and who God is and all that he has planned for his people is traced through Joshua as well and through the remainder of the Old Testament all the way up through Malachi. It's all of one piece. It's all the story of redemption about how God would bring the Messiah out of the line of Abraham according to his promises, according to who he is as the Lord. Ultimately, that God would bring the Messiah out of the line of Israel, as Jesus says here, that salvation is from the Jews. And so the Samaritans, by rejecting such a large portion of the Old Testament, they were ultimately leading themselves to believe in a God that wasn't true, because they had a wrong view of God. 
Richard Phillips writes, the Samaritans were trying to worship their idea of God in the way that seemed best to them. They were probably sincere in their religion, but it was nonetheless a false religion because it was based on ignorance of the true God. You worship what you do not know, said Jesus. Without knowledge from God, their ideas of God, salvation, and worship were bound to be wrong. Here is another case of unbelief, the Gospel of John's having already supplied us with several. Ignorance of God's revealed word. The Samaritan woman was a victim of the false teaching that she had received. Paul described such people as darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. You know, loved ones, what Jesus is teaching us here is that we cannot pick and, and choose between which books we prefer in the Bible and reject the others. Because the Bible as a whole is God's full revelation of who he is and of his plan of salvation. And if we only hold to certain books, then we will have a skewed, wrong view of God. For example, you may have heard people say that I like the God of the New Testament, but I don't like the God of the Old Testament. And this is because they'll argue the God of the Old Testament, he seems angry and, and very judgmental. But the God of the New Testament, he seems very nice and, and loving, especially as I read about Jesus in the Gospels. But, you know, if you follow their line of reasoning, even the fact that they read the New Testament with those kinds of lenses shows that they're reading the New Testament in, in a very kind of choosy way because Jesus is revealed as, as a God of wrath and as one who will bring judgment on the last day. But nonetheless, they'll pick and choose what they like from the Bible and disagree with the rest because it doesn't fit what they want God to be and who they want him to be. Ultimately, what this view of Scripture and of God, this leads to idolatry. It leads to us creating a false God and and worshiping that false god rather than the true god as he is revealed in scripture. You know, our culture today, we know that it places a premium on sincerity. As long as, as you're sincere in your worship, uh, no matter who or, or what you worship, as long as you're sincere in that, then you are okay. Even if the god that you have created in your own mind that you bow down to worship to, as long as you are sincere in those things, then, you know, that's okay. But Jesus says that though this Samaritan woman might have been sincere in her belief, and though the, the leaders and the teachers that were uh, teaching her were sincere in their beliefs, ultimately they were wrong. Because what they were worshiping was a false god, and what she had been learning was a false faith. Sincerity is not the measure of truth. We read this very clearly in Matthew chapter 7, these sobering words of the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 7, beginning of verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, 
will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, loved ones, this is why we have to study the scriptures, the whole counsel of God, so that we can know the right God in the right way. Not worshiping our ideas about God and not making up God as we would want him to be, but seeing how God is revealed in the scriptures and knowing the right God in the right way. That is so critical to us as Christians. And lastly, Jesus explains how we are to worship the right God in the right way. We see this in verses 23 through 26 of our passage this morning. When Jesus says to the woman, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now we are going to consider her confession uh, there in verse 25 in later passages, and as well as verse 26 where Jesus speaks of himself as the I am. We'll consider that in later passages in the Gospel of John. But I want us to, this morning, end by focusing on verse 24, where Jesus explains that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Loved ones, the fact that God is spirit means that God does not have a body like you and me. It means that he has a more wonderful kind of existence than you and I could ever comprehend. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer four, asks a great question, a very profound question. Asks, what is God? And the answer is that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. The catechism there underlining that God is spirit. He does not have a body like you and me. He is wholly altogether different from you and from me. One author, James Usher, in his book, A Body of Divinity, which was quoted last Sunday in uh, Sunday School, he asks uh, the question, how many things do you think about God when you say that God is spirit? What comes to mind, he asks, when you think about the idea that God is spirit? And he has six things that are very helpful for us to consider this morning. First, that God is a living substance. Secondly, that he is incorruptible, not subject to decay, like our flesh is subject to decay. Well, God is spirit. He's incorruptible. Thirdly, that he is incorporeal. He is without body, flesh, blood, or bones. 
So he's not only in one locale at one time, but he is spirit. He is present everywhere. Fourthly, that he is invisible, that he has not been seen with any mortal eye, neither can any man possibly see him. Fifth, he is intangible. He is not felt. And sixth, he is indivisible. He cannot be divided. And so, loved ones, because God is spirit, Jesus explains that we have to approach him in worship in a certain way. Not in the way that we might want or that we might devise, but in a way that he has prescribed, in a way that is completely outlined for us in Scripture, in a way that he has prescribed in Scripture. When Jesus says that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, when he says in spirit, he is saying that those who worship must not only worship in truth according to what we read in Scripture, as we'll discuss in a minute, but he's responding to the debate raised by the Samaritan woman. Her question, you remember, is where ought man to worship, on this mountain or in Jerusalem? And we might apply that today, right? In our building here in Southern California or uh, some building somewhere else in the world, some church located somewhere else in the world. Uh, And what architecture should that building have? How should it look? Uh, We can so often as Christians be caught up in the externals of worship. And we know that those can become so important to some people that they actually cannot worship God truly unless certain things are present, right? Uh, Certain things that are not always in accordance with Scripture. We see this, for example, in the Roman Catholic Church. Now they have certain holy sites and and certain architecture and certain parts of their services that they believe are honoring to God, but ultimately they are not honoring to God. What Jesus is outlining here is that sometimes we can be so focused on the externals that we lose sight of the fact that those who worship God must worship in spirit. In addition to our worship being biblically structured, as we'll talk about, Our worship ultimately must be conducted with a right heart. It must be offered in the name of Jesus, who is the truth and in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the power of the Holy Spirit, apart from whom Jesus says no one can call him Lord. Ultimately, Jesus is explaining here that our worship must originate and come from a regenerate heart. The internal matters of worship, the intent, the motive, the intensity, the sincerity, the reverence are of critical concern to the Lord. So our spirit, our worship must be in spirit, but it must also be in truth. Jesus is referring here to worshiping God according to how he has commanded us to worship him in scripture. As Reformed Christians, we believe that the Bible alone regulates how we are to worship God. We refer to this as the regulative principle. We know that while God encourages us to use our imagination and 
our ability to innovate in, in our work and in our daily life. He discourages us from doing so in our worship of him. He discourages us because he has given us a guide explaining how to worship him, and he doesn't want us to come before him in a way that we might think is pleasing in his sight, but he wants us to enter into worship in the way that he has outlined in his word, in the way that he has taught us in his word. And we are commanded in scripture not to deviate from it. Because once we deviate from what he has outlined in scripture, we become like the Samaritan. And we become like so many people throughout the ages who believed that they were worshiping the one true God, but because they entered into his presence in a way that did not please him, they perished or they were rejected by him. We read uh, the words of Ligon Duncan as he explains the importance of worshiping God in truth. Ligon Duncan writes, in contrast to all human creativity and initiative, the Bible is to be our rule for how we worship God because the Bible is our rule for how we are to think about God and how we worship God in turn impacts our concept of God. Put another way, how we worship determines whom we worship. That is why both the medium and the message, both the means and the object must be attended to in true worship. And so the Bible God's own revelation regarding himself and his worship, and not our own innovations, imaginations, experiences, opinions, and representations is to determine how we worship God. There must be scriptural warrant for all that we do. Loved ones, this is not to discourage us from worshiping God, but actually to encourage us. Because in the scriptures we read how God has given us instructions in how to worship him in a way that pleases him, that delights him. He has given us instructions and guidance in that. And he has also given us Christ so that when we enter into worship through Christ, we know that not only will our worship be accepted by God, but it will be pleasing to God because it is mediated by his son, our perfect Savior. He has given us instruction. He has given us Christ. And he has also given us his spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit who creates our union with Christ. So, loved ones, the good news of Scripture is that God is not just seeking worshipers, but he finds them and that he creates them in order that you and I might be able to worship him in spirit and in truth. All praise and all glory be to him. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for the wonderful news of the gospel, that uh, though we are uh, sinful and uh, though we are unworthy, yet you invite us to worship you as uh, our worship is mediated through Christ. Thank you for granting us the gift of faith so that we might believe and not doubt. We thank you for granting us uh, the spirit who uh, causes us to say, Abba, Father, and for the faith that you have given us in Christ. 
Lord, that we know that as we come to you and worship on the Lord's Day and throughout the week, that we are accepted and rejoiced over as your children. Lord, we ask that you would grant us to be faithful in uh, the callings that you have given each one of us, that you would prepare all that we need during the week uh, so that our faith might not just be internal but external as well, that the way that we speak and the way that we think, the way that we act might reflect uh, what you have worked into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.